morning, everyone. We are continuing on in our study through the book of First Peter, a series that we're calling Solid Faith. Uh, I want to recap a little bit of what we've seen so far, what Peter has been telling these Christians. And uh, it reminds me of the classic moment in The Wizard of Oz when they said, let's not go into the forest. We can't follow the yellow brick road in there because there's lions in there. There's tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. These were the things to watch out for in the dark forest. First Peter chapter 2 lists some dangers for Christians, but they're not lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. It's fleshly desires and having disdain for authority and seeking revenge. It's desires, disdain, and revenge. Oh, my. Say it with me. Desires, disdain, and revenge. Oh, my. Desires, disdain, and revenge. Oh, my. Peter says, avoid these dangers and instead submit yourselves to others for the sake of Christ. Be like Jesus in the way he submitted himself is the message, and it's a message for everyone. It's not just for slaves, although he addresses slaves directly. It's not just for husbands, but he addresses husbands directly. It's not just for wives, although you'll find Peter addressing wives directly. That's what we're going to see as we move now into 1 Peter chapter 3. But before we go there, I want to mention that in several places in the New Testament, you get sections like these ones that directly address husbands and wives, masters and slaves, and even parents and children. And these are called household codes, or the fancy German word for those are Haustafelm. Everybody turn to somebody next to you and say, Haustafelm. Now turn back to that person and say, Danke. It means thank you. Great. We are so cultured this morning. I want you to know that household codes are not unique to the Bible. Aristotle, several generations before the time of Jesus, writes the same kinds of things in his book, Politics. In, in book one of Politics, he advises on how to manage those relationships within a household. But what you find is that the Christian household codes are a lot different than Aristotle's. New Testament writers like Peter and Paul use this common format that people would have recognized, but then they kind of turn it on its head with a higher standard that's centered in Christian love. If you read Aristotle, you'll find that it's all about power dynamics and how to manage your subordinates, how to keep the authority that you've been granted. Aristotle talks about slaves in a way that if you read this, you would be completely turned off by it. He would have been, it would have been a pretty normal way to talk about slaves in his time, though. He calls slaves property. He calls them tools that serve a purpose, and he compares them to other kinds of useful animals that a master might own. And he states, this is a quote from Aristotle, it is part of the household science to rule over wife and children. And he goes on to say, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. You see, with Aristotle, it's all about power, which is a very different message that we hear from Jesus Christ. While there are similarities between the ancient Greco-Roman household codes and the New Testament ones, they're not about how to keep power or how to get power. They're about love and respect and mutual submission. And they always have a God-honoring goal in view. So let's listen now how Peter takes this common form, this household code language, and turns it on its head and challenges what Aristotle 
had been influencing people with for generations. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and you do not give way to fear. You might hear that and think, well, if this isn't about power, then why does Peter come right out of the gate with, wives, submit to your husbands? Kind of sounds like Aristotle to me. Well, let's take a look. Let's figure out what's happening here. First, notice that it's not all wives submit to all husbands, or it's not all women submit to all men. It is specifically wives submit to your own husband. He says that twice in this passage. We should ask ourselves, why is he advising them to submit if this is not about power or authority? The key to understanding this whole paragraph is in the first verse. Let's take a look again. Submit so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. This particular admonition is specifically for wives who have unbelieving husbands. It's not Aristotle's general wisdom about how to manage your household. It's not, let's forbid all gold jewelry and elaborate hairstyles in the church building, which, by the way, they didn't have back then. The purpose of this passage is evangelistic. It's how you can help your husband become a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, too. And this passage is a good example of why, when we study scripture, we always have to understand the context and the culture and identify some ways that it might be different from our own. The neighborhood I grew up in, I remember one time there was this speed limit sign, and the sign said 35 miles an hour. But then, overnight, somebody had taken a spray paint can, and they had changed the 35 so that it looked kind of like 85 miles an hour. And I remember, as a kid, I thought, this is great. I was like, Mom, Mom, you should drive 85 now. That's what the sign says. Ha, 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 ha. But obviously someone had just spray-painted over the 35, made the 3 look like an 8. No one actually thought that it was an 85-mile-an-hour 80, sign. And we knew this from the context. Yes, the sign said 85, but we also had took some other clues. We realized there were no signs in our town, or probably in the whole state of Washington, that said 85 miles an hour. We also realized it was pretty obvious that the paint didn't match the paint of the road sign. Somebody had just added this with spray paint. And we realized, you know what, yesterday that sign said 35. All of a sudden it says 85. And then the fourth clue that told us that this wasn't legit is that 85 was way too fast and way too dangerous on a road like this one in our neighborhood. And I tell you this story because I think that studying scripture is like that too. We don't just look at every verse in the Bible and go, oh, that's what it says. We better go ahead and do it. It's 85. We better go 85 now. If you did that, you'd have to go out and buy some slaves, or you'd have to bring back the holy kiss of greeting. But no, 
we take other things into consideration as well. The time, the place, the audience, who is the person talking to, who is the person that is speaking, or who, who wrote this, and does what we think it's telling us to do harmonize with the other parts of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, the heart of God. We need to understand the Bible in its own context and listen to what it said to them, and then do the work of figuring out what it means for us today. I think that that's a faithful way of handling God's word. But this might be a concern to you. To you, this might sound like a sneaky method for someone trying to make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. And to be honest, it can be. People have abused this method in the past to do just that. But I think we need to acknowledge that everyone has a way of interpreting the Bible. You may think that you don't, but everyone does. No one just blindly does everything that the Bible says. And if you don't think that's true, ask yourself why we're not washing each other's feet this morning. Jesus said, wash one another's feet. I've done this as an example for you. You should do this for one another. How come we don't do that on Sundays or ever in a lot of cases? You might hear that and go, well, <laughs> Jacob, Jesus in this passage doesn't literally mean wash one another's feet. And he doesn't mean us. He was talking to his disciples. That's my point. You're interpreting. You interpret what you say. Jesus told his disciples, love one another. Oh, we should do that. He said, wash one another's feet. Oh, we don't have to do that. Is it because we don't want to? Or because there's a reason behind this. The point is, we interpret. Back to 1 Peter 3. What is going on here? How can we understand this to understand what it means for us? We saw that this particular message was aimed at wives who have unbelieving husbands. Let's try to understand their situation a little bit more. One commentator who studies what it was like for women during this era said, in Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would probably worship the gods of her husband. Furthermore, the husband and society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus Christ as rebellion, especially if she worshiped Christ exclusively. In light of their subordinate role in society, wives must be especially strategic. Peter is telling them, the way you honor your husband, the way you love him and serve him, and the purity and the reverence of your life might just win him over for Christ. That's why he's telling them to submit, to be pleasant, to be a servant, the way that Jesus served. He's telling them in this passage something that we teach our children from an early age. You don't judge a book by its cover. It's what's on the inside that really matters. He says it's not your fancy clothes or your jewelry, it's your heart. It's the way that you love. This sounds a lot like Jesus telling the Pharisees, you like to look good on the outside, but on the inside, your heart's kind of a mess. Jesus compared it to a cup, like washing the outside of a cup. And it looks all clean, and it looks like it's been cleansed, but on the inside, it's gross. I was doing some pre-marriage counseling with a couple one time, and I had them read a similar household code section about husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, where, where Paul talks about relationships and how you should honor one another. And I had them read it and then come back and said, well, what did you guys think of Ephesians 5, the part about husbands and wives? And they said, Jacob, we don't like it one bit. We read it, and it was terrible. I said, okay, tell me more about that. Say, what it's basically saying is your job as your wife is to submit to your husband. We don't agree with that. We think that that's misogynistic. And taken at face value, wives, submit to your husbands, that's a bit problematic. 
That's like driving 85 miles an hour through my residential area when I was a kid. And sadly, verses like these ones have been used historically to keep women in unhealthy and abusive relationships. I'm sorry that your husband's beating you, but I mean, there it is. Submit to your husband. It says what it says. What can we do? I don't think that's a faithful way of interpreting scripture. But what I told this couple is don't just read that section. Read the whole thing. Don't stop there. Keep going. Because Paul immediately goes on to tell husbands, you need to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. He says, you need to commit to loving your wife more than you love your own body. And it's not hard to submit to somebody who is making it their goal in life to sacrifice themselves to treat you with love. But it has to work both ways. One person can't be doing it while the other person gets walked all over. The other person can't be giving and sacrificing while the other person does all the taking. It doesn't work that way. That's what Paul is showing here. That's what Peter is talking about here. And so it's not just submit to and obey your husband, wives, because he'll address the husbands as well. Here's what he says. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let me tell you, you will not find that in Aristotle. Aristotle spends his time pondering whether or not slaves and women are even fully human. That's a very different message than the message from Christians. Peter, on the other hand, tells husbands, hey, listen, you might be larger. You might be physically stronger than your wife, so you need to be considerate of her. You need to treat her with care and with respect. You see, in Christ, it's not you submit to me. It's let's all submit to one another. That's the way it should be in the church. That's the way it should be in the household. And you might be thinking, you said that it has to have both, and that's true, but what happens when it's not? It's not always two equal partners. Wives don't always respect and submit to their husbands, and husbands don't always love their wives the way that they love themselves. What if it doesn't work? What if you're the only person submitting and people are just taking advantage of you? Well, after Peter addresses specific roles within the Greco-Roman household, he shows what submitting looks like for everyone. And he says this, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For, in Psalms 34 here, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In this last section, Peter gives us gauges for unity in the church. Being like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. If these things are running low, then you have an explanation for lack of unity and harmony within a church. These are the, the pressure gauges that we should check in our relationships with one another. It's like I, I've had a few babies in my time. We're going to have another one here coming up soon. In my experience, babies pretty much only have three gauges. They have a comfort gauge, they have a sleep gauge, and they have a food 
gauge. And if the baby is crying, you need to check one of those gauges. Maybe they need to be changed. They're not comfortable. Maybe they're too hot. Maybe they're hungry and you need to feed them. Maybe they didn't get a big enough nap. Maybe they're just tired from everybody smiling and waving at them and making baby talk. Usually those things are reliable gauges that you can check. In the same way, if something is wrong in our church, if you're feeling anxious or tense or upset, if there's disunity, if there's lack of harmony, then these are some good gauges to check as well. Like-mindedness. Are we focused on the same things? Do we all agree on the big things? Is Jesus still at the center of what we're doing in this congregation? Sympathy. Do you care about other people? Can you see things from their perspective? Do you have an understanding disposition? And love. We've got to remember, love is an action. Ask yourself, am I actively showing love to the people that I'm connected with through Christ? Am I actually reaching out to people, or do I just love them in theory? i got to say, I've been really proud of the Thursday night Bible study group that meets here at uh, 6.30 every week. They've been going through a book called Stranger God, and it's about Christian hospitality. They've been telling each other, challenging each other, that Christian hospitality starts in the congregation. It starts on Sundays with not just talking with the people that you already know, but reaching out to visitors, going to somebody that you might have a different opinion or philosophy about Christ with, bridging the gap between people. They're challenging each other to do that. They get together on Thursdays and say, who did you reach out to? How did you put yourself out of your comfort zone? It was, it's fantastic. I want to encourage you to do the same. They're setting a great example for us in love, that active love that shows love. Compassion is another gauge. The Greek word for compassion is eusplonknos. That's such a fun word to say. When I was studying Greek, splonkna, that was my favorite Greek word. It's the word for your gut, like literally your intestines. And the ancients, like we think about Valentine's Day, love comes from the heart. They thought love come from the gut. Your, how, did you, how do you feel about something? Compassion is that feeling that the love for somebody that actually impacts you physically. You can feel the love that you have for somebody. You can feel when something is not right. Ask yourself, do I have that for the people that I worship with, the people that I've linked arms with at the Tri-Valley Church to say, let's do God's will together. Where's your compassion? And then last one, humility. This is one of the four uncelebrated virtues that we looked at back in May. Humility always says others first. You first, then maybe me. It is always voluntary submission. So this is a reminder for us, church. Check our gauges and then he ends by going back to the dangers that we were called to watch out for as Christians. Do you remember? Desires, disdain, and revenge. Oh my. Desires, disdain, and revenge. Watch out. Peter says simply, don't take revenge. Somebody may wrong you and you might want to hit them back, but don't. How did Jesus put it? We should turn the other cheek. He tells us, God knows what you need. He'll take care of you, and he will take care of them as well. So do not repay evil for, with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. So if these first century Christians were reading Aristotle, and they were persecuted, and they were in the minority, they might get a recipe from him about how to get that power back, how to get out of obscurity and get your household in order. They learn that they shouldn't submit to anyone or be anyone's doormat because it's all about power. 
And the result might end up reading like a really great rags to riches story. Somebody who pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps became something from nothing. We love these stories. That's like living the dream, right? But they're not reading Aristotle. They're reading Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And Peter is not telling them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's not telling them, climb your way to the top and get the most power and authority that you possibly can. He's telling them, keep your head down. Don't stop being like Jesus. His love, his compassion, and his humility. And that may not be as inspiring of a story, but it can be. I came across a story that was pretty inspiring from someone doing what Peter is prescribing here. Mary Johnson of Minneapolis repaid evil for blessing when she forgave and befriended the man who shot and killed her only son. Take a look at this video. I'm the person that murdered her son. I hated this boy. He was an animal and he deserved to be caged. They sentenced me to 25 and a half years. And I told him, look, I don't know you. You don't know me. We just need to get to know one another. You can tell a moment. I was just like, you know, may I come around the table and hug you? And he had to hold me up. She just crumbled. And I began to say, I just hugged the man that murdered my son. I just hugged the man that murdered my son. I think maybe that is what really started to establish our bond. I knew that it was over that I had truly, truly forgiven him. She's my mother now, she's my second mother. I treat him like my son. I talk to him like a son. Actually, she and I are neighbors now. Father, we just thank you. To be able to look in my face every day, it takes a great strength. To be forgiven is, 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 is teaching me something. This is a great story about forgiveness, about Christ-likeness paying off. Marion O'Shea started an organization called From Death to Life, and now they go around speaking in prisons and schools and churches about their story and the value of forgiveness and redemption. They're able to share the transforming love of Jesus because they've experienced the transforming love of Jesus. And so have we. So that's something that we need to share. We can share about how our lives and our hearts have been changed for the better because of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to do this as well. This is the message for this morning. Next week, we're going to continue on studying through chapter 3. There's going to be some interesting things we're going to have to unpack there as well. But for today, I just want to invite you. If you want a heart that's more like Jesus, let us know. We want to pray for you. If you haven't given your life to Jesus and said, I want to follow him. I want the choices that I make to be filtered through the, the person of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want to know God. If that's where you're at, please come and talk to me. Talk to somebody in this room. Connect with somebody. Build a bridge. Let's live this out. Let's check our gauges. Let's honor the Lord in the way that we serve, the way that we sacrifice. Let me pray for us. God bless this church. May we truly be your servants, not just in the general sense, not just in the mission trip sense or service project sense, but in the how we love each other sense. May we truly have compassion for one another and say, how can I bless you? How can I serve you? In the name of Jesus, we ask this.